Welcome to the Dental Amigos podcast with Dr. Paul Goodman and attorney Rob Montgomery, taking you behind the scenes of the dental business world, all the things you didn't learn in dental school but wish you had. Rob is not a dentist and Paul is not a lawyer, but since Rob is a lawyer, we need to tell you that this podcast is for informational purposes only and shouldn't be considered legal advice. Listening to this podcast does not and will not create an attorney-client relationship. As is always the case, you should formally consult with legal counsel before proceeding with any legal matter. Learn more about The Dental Amigos at www.thedentalamigos.com. And now, here are the Dental Amigos. Hello, everyone. I'm Rob Montgomery. I'm joined, as always, by the head nacho himself, Dr. Paul Goodman. Great to be talking, Rob. It's good to talk to you, Paul. And welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Dental Amigos here in Season 2, talking about associate agreements from the employer's perspective, the practice owner, things to think about, things to do, and things not to do. Uh, Today, we are talking about our favorite topic, Restrictive covenants. Restrictive covenants very gets a lot of press out there on the Facebook group, Rob. Just dentist people don't like to be told what to do, but especially dentists. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to this one. Well, it's you know, and it's and it's an important one. You know, it's an important one uh, on both sides. You know, from the uh, uh, associate standpoint, obviously, this is limiting their ability to practice their profession. Uh, some of these limitations may be reasonable. Some of them may be unreasonable. I like the, I like the word reasonable, the RRRC, reasonable restrictive covenants, because, you know, that I think there's, as you see, just like dentists now, I'm, see a lot of misinformation about dentistry out there on social media. Yeah. I'm sure attorneys see a lot of misinformation you don't, you don't about say. restrictive covenants. Wow, so really? I'd like to ask you, Rob, I'm a practice owner, and I tend to be called... Um, too trusting, too naive. It's by my wife. She says this about me. It sounds nice, but the way she says it doesn't always sound nice. So I actually will admit it's maybe one of my opportunities for improvement. So what if I, you've done all of our associate agreements. What if I came to you and said, hey, Rob, I've thought about it. This next associate I'm going to hire, I don't want any restrictive covenant. I'm just going to trust them. You know, Paul and Jeff, we got two practices. We got eight dentists. But this time, I don't want any restrictive covenant. Why do I need one? Why would you say, hey, Paul, even though that might sound generous it yeah. comes with some risk i thought you were gonna ask me what would i do i, I would because I, I, I i was getting ready to say well we would take your phone and, and lock you in the studio <laughs> yeah, yeah, right yeah. until yeah. until you said that you were going to agree to one and then, yeah. we, and then we'd let you out um it's uh it's important to preserve the the value of the practice the gotcha. goodwill of the practice Um, You know, if someone is working for you and they have the ability to develop these relationships with patients, they have the ability to leave and and contact those patients or to leave and join a practice or open a practice, start up a practice, purchase a practice somewhere nearby where those patients can easily find them gotcha. and and transition to their uh, to their practice for their for their dental treatment. And that. That's a major ding on the value of the practice. I mean, in the transition world, as you know, overwhelmingly the largest component of the purchase price allocation is goodwill. Now, some of that obviously is for tax reasons. But look, I mean, realistically, the used dental equipment is not worth a whole lot of money in the practice. And then what's everything else that you're buying? You're buying the goodwill, these patient relationships. And you, the way that you have to protect those is to limit the associate's ability 
to compete against you, to take those, to transition those relationships. Because again, if they're able to transition that goodwill someplace, they're not paying for it. So if you think about it in that sort of the context of a practice transition, an asset purchase agreement where someone's buying the practice, they're paying a lot of money for this goodwill. Without a non-compete, you're allowing the associate to basically throw a bunch of goodwill as much as they can stuff in bags and run out the back door with it. So you've convinced me that a restrictive covenant you know, I'm the Don, dental nachos guy. I believe in collaboration, but I also believe in, you know, reasonably protecting myself. So I, I, I am with you. But then, you know, we talked about in a previous season about unreasonable restrictive covenants. So now I say, hey, Rob, I'm in Pennington, New Jersey. I'm a practice owner. I'm okay with this restriction. But my friend said, you know, 30 miles is normal. You know, and my friend says three blocks is normal. Where should practice owners be thinking about where reasonableness comes in? Yeah, so reasonable. So you're talking about a covenant not to compete, which is a type of restrictive covenant. So basically, we're talking about covenants not to compete and non-solicitation gotcha. covenants. So um, start with the latter first. Non-solicitation means you can't reach out directly to patients. I don't know who would do that these days. That's right. ridiculous. It's like the old days where it's like, you know, if you, if you steal a patient list and like give it to your new office manager <laughs> right. and say, call these people and tell them where we are. Like now, they're like, I want to find Jeff Goodman. Is Google Dr. Right. Jeff Goodman. You know, like it's, I don't want I just want to jump in and say not everybody thinks like me. No one has to, but like I, I had a patient, I don't know if I would even love that feeling, right? You know, like yeah. of them saying, I'm yeah. down the street now. Come down here for your yeah. filling. You it's know, I, I don't know. It'd just it's like be a sta- little yeah, it, it wouldn't right? feel feel like there's different ways to do that in a way that's yeah. less less odd. Well, for sure. You know, and then the other non solicitation uh, aspect is uh taking uh, or soliciting or hiring employees. So, yeah. especially in this day and age, right? Like, well, that, who isn't searching that for- That I heard, you know, there's right. a Seinfeld thing with the, the talk low and they said since that I heard, because now, Rob, you're speaking some of my language because 18 patients that annoy me, well, that might not be so bad, but right, my key right. team member- Yeah, that's that not I cool. I can't find a new one. So that, that I think is a key point to point into right. because that could be a problem. So those, those two- uh, types of restrictive covenants, those two non-solicitations, they're entirely reasonable, you know, and they should be in the agreement. And anybody that has a problem with that, you know, uh, the, from an employer standpoint, you might take a step back and say, is this is this associate the right person for yeah. me? You know, and with those two, obviously, and especially with the uh, non-solicitation of employees, what you really want to see in the agreement is some sort of penalty that says, if you hire my hygienist or hire the one of the assistants that you are going to have to pay X number of dollars or some portion of their salary over the last year or some percentage yeah. or all of the last year's salary because that is you know a very disruptive thing to your uh, to your practice yeah. and finding that replacement's hard so then so we started with the latter part let's go back to the the, the earlier part what is a, a, a reasonable, uh, covenant not to compete, you know, and you're talking about how much mileage, how much distance from the practice is reasonable. It all depends where you are. You know, uh, if you're in an urban area, uh, especially like New York City, you know, you might be looking at 10, 15 blocks. Right. Philadelphia, 
you know, we're talking about the center city, what we we refer to as us people have been in Philadelphia for, well, it's, it's actually becoming a number of years yeah. now. Remember the, uh, the the papal grid when the yeah, Pope yeah. came to Philadelphia, yes. right? There was the papal grid they referred to it as where, you know, this that section of center city that you couldn't drive your car for yes. several days. And uh, Philadelphia being what it is, we brought in the National Guard. There were tanks <laughs> guarding yeah, yes. the papal grid, yeah. you know, metal detectors before you could go in. So, you know, that's for, for the Philadelphians uh, listening to the show, uh, Schuylkill to the Delaware River, Washington Avenue, you know, to uh, up to Spring Garden. And for folks who aren't familiar with Philadelphia, we're talking about yeah, like a couple of square miles, you know, the so downtown there. So those fit into the reasonable. And if I could just jump in a question I thought of, how long do they usually last post-employment? It depends too, you know, and that, that goes to it as well. So uh, generally you're looking at, it, it's a different length of time that you usually would see for a restrictive covenant in in a practice transition agreement where somebody's selling yeah. the practice. A lot of times that's, you know, five years. Uh, in an associate agreement, uh, you're probably looking at anywhere from one to two years. Yeah. Uh, we're seeing more uh, group practice DSOs asking for three, uh, which that's, you know, it can be a long time. I mean, generally speaking, after you go through a few hygiene cycles like that, from a practice yeah. center's perspective, like, eh, I mean, that should be enough. And if and if that's not a sticky enough relationship with your patient at that point, then, you know, maybe you should reevaluate what you're doing. And, if, you know, we're talking about restrictive covenants, but I think it, it weaves into what we talked about with the end of the associate. This is usually happening. You know, I'm a practice owner, and this is happening because – you know, it might just be overly simplistic because the practice, because the associate's not buying into the practice, right? Mm -hmm. They're right. going to do something else. And as a practice owner, you want to protect yourself in a reasonable way of that damaging what mm -hmm. you've built. And, you know, when we talk about selling the practice as a practice owner, no one knows where this wacky life journey takes us. You mm -hmm. know, tell me about the assignability or how does this fit with DSO sales or any sales yeah. of the practice? Yeah, it's important. I mean, if we have a client who's buying a practice from a seller who has associates, we want to see the associate agreement. Yeah. And we're looking at the first thing we look at are, are the restrictive covenants. You yeah. know, and if we don't keep these people on uh, post-closing, you know, do we have the ability to prevent them from going across the street and hanging out a shingle? Right. And, and if they don't have agreements with restrictive covenants, we're counseling our clients on the potential ramifications of that. I mean, if you want to go and pay $800,000 for you know, half of the patients to leave and go across the street with the associate that you didn't hire post-closing, you are going to face some difficult times with your practice transition. Yeah. So um, it's uh, it's very important and, and, it, and it impacts because it goes to the value of the practice. Gotcha. That's it. And let's use the go off of black and white because this question gets asked a lot in social media into the gray world. You know, let's say, let's use me and my brother. You know, I, I don't, I think our, I think, Rob, I want to show how good of leaders we are. By sharing how challenging it is to run a practice, I don't know if any of our associates ever want to buy one. Yeah, right, so they're right. staying with us for the time being. Right. But let's just say in an example, Dr. Guac's associate says, I got a five-mile restrictive covenant. But hey, practice owners, I see this practice within four miles. Do they pay to be bought out of their restrictive covenant? Do they have a friendly conversation? As you as an attorney, I know this whole podcast is not official legal advice, but as things mm -hmm. like that happened in your world. Yeah, I mean, yes, they have, um, and we've been on both sides of that. I mean, generally, from a practices standpoint, uh, it's probably not a good idea to put provisions in the agreement that allow some sort of automatic 
buyout because you never know. You know, it's like you always have the ability to evaluate it and and agree to to something. Um, You just may not be happy with what you're actually getting versus what you're giving up at that time. And you would need a crystal ball uh, to know what to put in the associate agreement at the time of that person's employment to know how damaged you could be if they were to to go that mile within that that restricted area. Right. And and it depends, you know, were, they, were they here for 10 weeks, 10 months, or 10 right. years, right? And this is why relationships with your advisors, relationship with everyone in life is so important. I always say ROI is, you know, relationships, opportunity, and the impact you can provide, not necessarily money. But this is why relationships with your advisors, you know, are so important because they get to know you as people and you can kind of have authentic discussions with them when spicy toppings come up right you know like For i sure. don't know if you were having a discussion with paul and jeff goodman about their associate wanted to be 0.2 miles away from the restrictive covenant for the xyz for practice we didn't care about maybe it was a practice that did like small practice you might say hey yeah paul and jeff, why don't you just let her do it right. let him let that person do it or you might say yeah i know you guys you guys might want to buy more practices this is going to be a problem you you know so that's why i just think having these relationships with the people you trust is just so key yeah i mean look and and then you know and, and that's a very different situation than if somebody says like i want to do a 16 chair startup you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. four and a half miles away like yeah, holy yeah. smokes you know but with that too you would ask a moment ago you know so it's important when it comes time to sell the practice you also want to make sure that this is assignable yeah you know that it can actually be passed over to to the seller all these issues are very state specific too, Paul. Yeah. There's a lot of specific law in different states as to what you can and can't do, how they survive, how they're assignable. This is one of those classic places where, you know, using somebody else's employment right. agreement from Texas, if you're in Florida or you're in Massachusetts, like it, it totally you, this is what you got to say to your your dental clients because I just want to help help you and also help them is, you know, when they say, can I just use this other person's one? Say, can I use someone else's treatment plan? Mm-hmm. Because they would just fall apart if they, they say, that's crazy, Rob. You say, well, that's how crazy it sounds. And this is where I think, you know, just the existence of good contracts, which cuts from our previous season, this season is so key on both ends, you know, yeah. because I've had calls from associates and this is why we're talking about practice owners and restrictive covenants. You know, I've had associates say, hey, Paul, my practice owner just asked me to sign this contract. I've been working for two and a half years. Why do you think? I'm like, because he's selling to a DSO and he wants to do, do this. So, so mm-hmm. probably best practices are best practices for a reason, right? Yeah. You know, and I think it's just, you know, whether you're going to sell to a DSO, not sell to a DSO, what we're sharing with you is getting good contracts in place with reasonable restrictive covenants protects you and creates and still creates a win-win relationship. Like yeah. it's not an adversarial thing with your associates, it's just an that. awareness thing. For sure. For sure. And, you know, and know this too, that, you know, a bigger may not be better, <laughs> you know, like, so, you know, and, and that's, a, this is a business decision and a personal decision right. too, you know, and you said how many miles is, is, uh, is, is reasonable. It, it totally depends where you are. Like I said, if you're in an urban area versus a suburban area versus a rural area, the more remote you are, the fewer patients there are in the whatever restricted area, expect that restricted area to be bigger. I mean, many moons ago, I gave a, uh, did a lunch and learn. Remember we used to do that, Paul? Yeah, you yeah. Go to a lunch and learn yeah, where yeah. you go. Old fashioned, you get some like, Chick-fil-A or something in, like that, in some person. hoagies. Yep, I think, I think we did have Chick-fil-A at this one. Mm-hmm. And you know, you in-person go, it's not on Zoom, it's not virtual. Um, and um, so I gave my 
spiel about employment agreements to to this group of, of residents. And of course, we talked extensively about restrictive covenants, some great questions about it. And then after the um, the this, the uh, the lecture, this uh, resident came up sort of sheepishly and he said, uh, do you think a 75 mile non-compete <laughs> right. is too much? Like, Whoa, right. I've never heard that. And I think he was in like Montana or Wyoming or something. And it kind of made sense in that area. Um, so it, it depends on where you are, what is what is reasonable. But, you know, if, if these uh, covenants not to compete are supposed to be reasonably tailored to protect the business. Yeah. So you're supposed to do what you're supposed what you need, but no more. You know, and, and when we talk about this, this is all the, the judge of this is the judge. And right? that's why we, let's, let's use the, you know, as we wrap up along the way, the drama part. You know, you've done so much great work for our community, Rob, sharing like, hey, 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 these things are enforceable. Can't just willy nilly say a restrictive covenant is not enforceable. Don't worry about it. Right. Yeah. Not but at all. share with us, you know, when it's unreasonable or it's not upheld or a little if you're a practice owner thinking I want to get as much as possible and make it as you know, big as possible. Have you had seen cases where they're not enforceable or deemed unreasonable? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I had a, uh, a tax professor in law school in the first week. She said, pigs get fat and hogs go to slaughter, yeah. right? It's all right to be a piggy. If you turn into a hog, you're going to get killed. So the piggier you are with this stuff, uh, or the hoggier you are, yeah, is that yeah. a word, Paul? The hoggier you are, okay. uh, you leave yourself open to a judge saying that's too much. Yeah. And then you're at the mercy of the court. So, you know, if if you're saying 25 miles and then, you know, when reality 10 is reasonable and then, you know, you're trying to defend this 25 miles in a in a court proceeding and a judge is like, eh, I'm not digging this dude at all. I mean, I think he's being a pig. I'm going to knock this down to five miles. I'm like, wow, you just really didn't help yourself right. by being that piggy. That being said, very few of these end up getting litigated because the litigation economics yeah. just don't work, especially for the associate. And so the practical effect of this is, from a practice owner standpoint, within reason, if you are more aggressive, um, you are going to stymie that associate's ability to be entrepreneurial in a very large area. Yeah. You know, and so when someone goes to get a loan for a startup or to buy a practice as part of the underwriting process the lender wants to see their associate agreement and they're looking at the restrictive covenant because yeah. nobody's going to lend the money to someone to buy or start up a practice within a restricted area to hope that the judge agrees with everybody that this is unreasonable yeah and so you know whoever provide or Huntington Bank or whomever is not handing over a million dollars to buy this practice for the sheriff to show up on opening day and put a right. lock on the door, right? So if even if you as a practice owner take that extra step and somebody says, oh, this will never be enforceable, doesn't matter. The right. reality is that associate is not going to be able to do something entrepreneurial within that area. Now, you know, if you came up with something kooky, you know, a 20 mile non-compete in a place where 10 would be reasonable, just hypothetically, um, and then that uh, that associate goes and they get a job 11 miles away, eh, you know, what are you going to do? Right. You know, like that they didn't have to go get a loan. So if they didn't get nixed there, they don't really have any skin in the game. So at that point, 
you know, they can just leave and stop right. working there once the, the litigation starts to get heated up or it seems like it's imminent. Um, so in that respect, they have the ability to uh, to sort of uh, uh, test your uh, right. your fortitude and your uh, uh, how, how strongly you feel about this stuff in the associate agreement. Uh, I should say working as an associate, whereas it really it precludes them from being practice owners. And, and what you share there is such great value. And I, I was just managing a, a thread today in my own group that talked about, and I'll use two quick things as wrap. It's like, if a practice owner is not willing to pay a guaranteed income to an associate, I know that there's some unicorn jobs where that's okay. But most of the time, that causes a problem. And I tell the person applying for the job that that is a red flag that you have to deal with. If you had an associate, I'm just, I haven't dealt with this personally, that said, I refuse to sign any restrictive covenant for where working. To me, it's just a sign of a red flag for that person. Yeah. And maybe you're just not a good fit for each other. Yeah. You know, I think yeah. that what we're sharing here is practice owners, you got to look for the right fit, not just as a per professional, but also personality. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and that, that sort of position from an associate shows just such a, an oblivious disregard for right. the business reality of, of a practice owner. Like, and if somebody says, hey, I want you to sign a 20-mile non-compete in some suburban area right. where, as we said, like 10 would be too much, then let's say like, you know, no, I, I don't like 20, but like 10 makes sense because, look, I have to earn a living without, yeah. you know, having to rent another apartment or sell my house yeah. or move my family, you know, and and that can be a compelling thing. Uh, you know, obviously, from a practice owner standpoint, when you have a seven mile non-compete and somebody wants it to be five and a half, like, eh, you know, what? Yeah, that, could, that's it, suspicious. I always say make the best decision in the moment there, but you, you've convinced me, Rob, next associate, I'm not going to say no restrictive covenant, but I'm going to shoot for a reasonable one. And I think practice owners here, it's such a valuable, valuable episode to them because when these things come into play, practice owners, it usually means something is happening that's different, something that's happening that's sometimes a problem, yeah. something that there's a, a shift in the relationship. So you want to set it up for success to begin with. Yeah, that's great. Uh, great parting advice. Well, thank you, Paul. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed uh, this podcast or any of the other podcasts you've listened to that we've done, uh, please go on uh, Apple or on Google and give us a good review. And until the next time, thanks, everybody. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for listening to another great podcast with the Dental Amigos. And don't forget to tune in next time to have the dental business demystified. If you're looking for more information about today's podcast, you can find it on thedentalamigos.com. If you're looking for Paul, you can find Paul at drpaulgoodman.com. And if you're looking for Rob, you can find him at yourdentallawyer.com. This podcast has been sponsored by Orange Line Media Group, helping dentists and other professionals create content people love. Find out how we can help you take your business to the next level at www.orangelinemg.com. Till next time.